Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. My guest today is Martin Josephson, a global investor who scours emerging markets to find unique public market investment opportunities for his company, Elephant Asset Management. Based in London, Martin and his colleagues search for value in companies across the world, from Indonesia to India and Kenya. After growing up in Sweden, Martin entered the University of Virginia, graduating from the McIntyre School of Commerce in 2001. He spent the early part of his career in the M&A teams of JP Morgan and HSBC, and a couple of years at the World Bank, where he specialized in the financial systems of several African countries. Martin earned his MBA from London Business School in 2007, and has spent the last decade as an investment manager, first at Aperios Partners and today at Elephant. Martin also remains highly engaged with McIntyre, serving on the school's global advisory board. Martin, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to join you today. Hey, so Martin, let's start by setting the scene for our listeners. You live in London, yet most of your portfolio at Elephant Asset Management is in Africa and Asia. What has COVID meant for globally minded investors such as yourself? Yeah, so, uh, so Elephant is based out of London. And then, as you mentioned, the eight countries that we invest in are all in Africa and Asia. So before COVID, we would visit these countries roughly once every quarter, which obviously hasn't been the case for the last 12 months. So I would say that it's this lack of traveling and the fact that we've all been working from home or the office that's been the, been the biggest change that we've all had to make. Um, by way of background, we invest in companies that are small to mid cap. And given this size, it is often the case that they're not covered by any broker research. And it's this lack of company information that is one of the reasons why we travel so much. Now, I bring this up because one positive aspect of being an international investor in companies of this size is that we often have very good corporate access. And usually our dialogue is with either the founder, the CEO, or the CFO. What this has meant is that at the onset of the pandemic, we could build on our existing relationships and reach out to these individuals directly and have a conversation with them with them via Zoom, Teams, or over the phone. And I would say that in many instances, Zoom has actually brought us closer to the management teams and the number of company interactions has actually increased from pre-COVID times. I think that just like with us, management is not traveling at the time, which means that they have more time for investors. And I also think that management appreciates that they need to communicate with investors in times like these. Now, with regards to our investment strategy, nothing else has changed since the pandemic started. You know, we still focus on the same countries and the same industries that we have been doing for the last 10 years. So I guess what that really means is you now know what the kitchens and living rooms and home offices of all of your uh, investee companies look like. Yes, that's right. And and who has a dog and who has a cat? And yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, interesting. So has that, I mean, in you know, we'll talk in a minute about the specific countries that you uh, do invest in, but for the most part, has that transition to a Zoom-based interaction with your investees' companies, has it worked pretty well? No, it has. I mean, I think it's worked flawlessly. You know, it's 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 not a problem to get connections and good connections with any of the countries that we're in. You know, uh, management teams have made themselves very available. 
So I think overall, we are very pleasantly surprised by how well it's all worked out. Nice. So, so let's open the hood. Um, help us get oriented on Elephant's investment portfolio. Um, you mentioned you do small to mid cap. Tell us more about what the portfolio looks like, what kind of companies and countries you invest in. Yep, absolutely. So, um, so we are invested in eight countries across Africa and Asia. And those countries are China. So here we invest both in the Hong Kong exchange as well as the mainland exchange. So it's China, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, South Africa, and then Kenya. And within these countries, we look for companies that generates its revenue and profit growth domestically. So as a result, we don't invest in companies that rely on exports to the developed markets. And we also avoid global macro themes such as commodities, oil and gas stocks, and so on. Other than those stocks that we don't invest in, you know, our fund is completely sector agnostic. We narrow it down further by focusing on small to mid cap companies. And our target universe is between 100 million and 1.2 billion free float market cap. And this sort of free float market cap is an important distinction for us, given that the companies that we look at usually has a shareholder stake that is owned by the founder and the founder, his or her family, which is something that we like since it aligns our interest with theirs. But generally speaking, these shareholdings don't trade, which is why we look at the free float market cap. The free float is important because that is what's actually being traded. The stake that's owned by the family will generally not trade, which is why we look at the free float market cap, i.e. the trading cap. And then our portfolio consists of approximately 25 holdings, and our approach is completely bottom-up. That is, the portfolio is the 25 best ideas across the eight countries and we do not seek to allocate a certain percentage to any geography or sector. You know, if we if we cannot find an investment idea in, say, South Africa, you know, then so be it. We will not try to force something in the portfolio just for the sake of it. Now, the reason why we invest in the eight countries that we invest in is probably threefold. You know, first, they have an existing and growing middle class. You know, the GDP per capita in these countries is sufficiently high to allow for discretionary spending and does not just cover food and shelter spending. In addition, these countries also benefit from a stable political backdrop and supportive economic policies. The second reason relates to the fact that all countries largely adhere to the IFRS accounting standards and that there is a sufficiently large pool of listed companies that are willing to provide transparency with regards to the financial statements and corporate governance. And lastly, all of the eight markets are diverse enough that there's enough companies listed outside of the materials and oil and gas space for us to look at. So that in a nutshell is where we are and what type of companies we look at. Oh, thanks for that. So I noticed in uh, your description that you don't invest in commodities and it sounds like uh, Latin America is not included in your portfolio. What's the thinking behind that approach? So the reason why we don't invest in commodities and oil and gas stocks is because the share prices of these companies in these sectors tend to be driven as a group by the underlying commodity prices. So, for example, you know, the share price of an Indonesian small cap nickel company will more likely be driven by the global price movements in nickel than perhaps by any of the operating efficiencies that specific company might be implementing. Um, With regards to Latin America, 
these equity markets are predominantly dominated by commodity stocks and therefore not a great fit for us. Also, the region has historically been politically and economically less stable than our current markets, which would add another risk layer to the portfolio. And lastly, you know, we're based in London and the companies that we invest in is to the east of us. So from a time zone and travel perspective, investing in Latin America would require additional resources and add complexity. We generally wake up early, uh, which means that we can follow the Asian equity markets as day trade. If we were also to invest in LATAM, we would in effect have to burn the candle at both ends since we, you know, we would be required to stay up very late at night. And then finally, one more point on logistics. You know, it's relatively easy to visit Malaysia when you're, for example, in Thailand. You know, and we can travel to South Africa and Kenya from London overnight, arrive in the morning, have our meetings for a day or two, and then fly back home without our body clock being too messed up. Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting combination of, you know, both substantive reasons having to do with the the way value is driven in commodity stocks, as well as just sort of practical considerations of how you how you run your business and, you know, what you can get done in in a day. That That's interesting. Hey, so, Martin, I'd like to ask you a bit about Africa. Remind me the countries in Africa that you invest in and what is it about those countries in particular that makes you excited? So the two countries that we do invest in is South Africa and Kenya. Um, And again, I think the reasons why we are in these two countries goes back to the point I made earlier. You know, they they have a sizable and growing middle class. They have accounting standards and are politically stable. Um, There's enough there's enough companies outside of the industries such as commodities and oil and gas for us to invest in. So it's broad enough. And then it's also deep enough equity market, you know, so that's, that's mainly the reason why we are in these two countries. There are obviously a lot of other countries to consider, you know, Nigeria is a very, you know, very populous country um, and has a lot of companies listed on it, on its exchange. I think, you know, we might not be as comfortable with the corporate governance standards in, in the country as such. And then there's other countries, you know, that might have, you know, a few companies that would be applicable to what we look at. But given that we travel to these countries so often and we make such an enormous investment in the countries, we need the universe of companies that we can invest in to be big enough that it warrants being one of the countries that we go to. So I'm guessing you would probably agree that at least for the foreseeable future, the opportunity set in South Africa and Kenya is sufficient, sufficiently large that you can just continue to focus there and don't really need to expand to additional countries in, in, in Africa. Is that, is that accurate? I think that's, yeah, that is accurate. I think we, we sort of, we estimate that there's probably no three, 350, 400 or so companies that we can invest in. Uh, and, you know, we have a portfolio of 25. There's obviously more companies coming on board as they go public every year. So there's enough companies in the eight markets where we currently are uh, for us to look at. So that's not an issue right now. Martin, in the course I teach here at UVA, we study how the unique context of a country, things like natural resource endowments, demographics, culture, political economy, geopolitics, all of that stuff, can make a huge difference in determining the opportunities and challenges for companies and investors I mean, of course, those factors are in many ways your bread and butter and the kinds of issues you think about every day. 
I guess I'm curious, how do your you and your colleagues get up to speed on these factors? And then how do you keep yourself up to date, especially given that, you know, many of the countries you invest in are fairly volatile with changing dynamics, both economically and politically? So we, we have been doing our investment strategy for 10 years now. So, you know, we, we have that as a foundation going into, into the pandemic, if you so say. Um, now, with regards to staying on top of it, you know, we, we read the local newspapers, you know, be that the Jakarta Post in Indonesia, the Standard in Kenya or the Times of India in India. Um, we will also read any research pieces related to the countries. And right now, we're probably getting weekly updates from our brokers on the infection rates and the vaccine rollouts in the various countries. Um, we will also speak to our network contacts in the respective regions, as well as the management teams of the companies that we invest in to get a sense for what it's really like on the ground. And I can imagine that sort of on the ground um, contact base is, is important to you. Tell us a little bit more about who are in those networks? What what kinds of people? Are you talking to, you know, local competitors? Are you talking to lawyers and accountants? Like who, what kinds of people are in those networks? I mean, it, it's a very broad scope of people. You now it can be, it's always like, it will be the management teams, right? But it will be our friends who might be in private equity. You know, they, they, they see a different type of companies that we do, but they're usually locally based. So they will have a good sense for, for that part of it. Uh, it can be friends and families that we have developed over the course of the 10 years. Um, it could be you know, people that have been in companies that we might've spoken to that are now doing something completely different. Um, and that could be another set of people. So it's, it's a very broad span of people that we speak with. Martin, let's come back to COVID for a second, you know, not to dwell on it. I mean, in your opening, you talked about how you've had to transition to an online uh, based interaction with your portfolio companies and I guess your networks as well, and, and that that's all worked pretty well. I'm interested more substantively, though. Has it changed your investment approach and the makeup of your portfolio? In other words, given that the pandemic has played out so differently around the world and will continue to play out differently around the world, is that actually starting to impact your investment decision making? I, I wouldn't say that the makeup of the portfolio itself has changed that dramatically because of the pandemic. You know, at the start of the meltdown last year, our fund was strongly weighted in favor of sectors outside of this discretionary products. You know, as a matter of fact, we actually had the lowest sector allocation to consumer stocks since inception. However, more than anything else, this was primarily the, the results of a deteriorating risk return profile for consumer companies and a higher growth outlooks in other sectors such as technology, fintech, healthcare companies in the previous quarters leading up to that. But uh, as the year went by, it's probably fair to say that the relative weightings of the portfolio changed somewhat because of the performance of the respective sectors. So sort of digital enterprises, which we were overweight in, rallied strongly and ended the year at an all-time high. And as a result, their weighting will have ticked up some. And then on the other hand, you would have labor-intensive industries, such as brick-and-mortars retailers, for example, that did not participate in the rally. And as a result, their weights probably declined some. As you look out a couple of years, are you starting to think that certain countries, certain regions are going to recover 
or are already recovering faster than others. And that that may fundamentally change either the countries that you invest in or your investment approach because the pandemic is not being experienced in the same way all over the world? I don't think that I don't think we would change the eight countries that we're currently invested in, but I do think that these eight countries will emerge from this at different stages. You know, so so maybe China is taking the lead right now, for example, but then you will have other countries like Thailand or very tourist-focused countries that may take longer to recover because you know the vaccination rates in Europe or whatever region is taking a long time, and they're not going to see the tourism. Um, picking up as quickly as they would like to. So there might, might be changes like that. But I don't think the, the overall investment strategy is probably not going to change. Got it. So it might have more to do with timing than a fundamental reallocation of the portfolio or something like that. Yes, I would agree with that. So let's turn and talk for a minute about corporate governance. How do you get comfortable with local approaches in markets as diverse as, say, Kenya and Thailand? So I mentioned earlier that all of the eight countries that we invest in largely adhere to the IFRS accounting standards and that the company listed in these countries also provides some form of transparency through the financial statements that they file. And this is obviously a start, right? Now, with regards to corporate governance, this is needless to say something that we spend a lot of time on since we at all costs want to avoid investing in a fraud. Uh, And it's obviously worth noting that corporate governance issues and fraud are not something unique to emerging markets. And, you know, we have here in Europe the recent example of Wirecard. And then, of course, in the U.S., you will have the likes of Enron and WorldCom, which illustrates that, you know, fraud is a global phenomenon. And I guess you could also question the corporate governance of private companies like WeWork, for example. You know, but to address the issue, we have developed the corporate governance checklist that we use for all of the companies that we invest in. And without going too much into details, some of the things that we look at can be, can be the corporate setup. You know, for example, where's the company incorporated versus where is it domicile? What's the corporate structure and do they have different voting rights, dual listings? You know, does the company use a local or international auditor? And what we're trying to do is get a sense for how any legal claims on assets would be resolved and what's the credibility uh, of an auditor and so on. We will also look at the financial statements and the company's corporate actions to assess any cash leakage, the credibility of the financials, capital allocation and underlying growth potential. And you can do that by analyzing the cash flows, look at impairments and whether the company has been growing using acquisitions or through organic growth. And then lastly, we will also look at the management team and the board, focusing on the likes of management turnover, the track record of the management team, and the incentive schemes. And again, what we're trying to assess is the, is the depth of the executive and the board, how the company is aligned with shareholders, and if there's any connected parties. Sounds like a very thorough process. And you know, you've been at this now for the better part of a decade. Is it, in your experience, are corporate governance standards improving in the countries that you invest in? And any examples of countries that you're particularly uh, pleased to see those developments? Um, I am of the opinion that the, the corporate governance is improving. You know, I think one of the reasons for that is the increased focus on ESG, 
by the investment community, which is encouraging companies to improve on all three aspects. Uh, and obviously, corporate governance, the G, is one of them. You know, one of the things that I think we see that indicates that things are moving in the right direction is the fact that we now see more independent non-executives on the company boards, as well as women uh, holding management and board positions. So Martin, one of the central themes of your portfolio seems to be rising middle-class incomes and consumer demand in emerging markets. Tell us more about how you see this trend and how you're able to translate that into investment ideas. So we invest in countries where the average GDP per capita is sufficiently high to allow for discretionary spending by an existing sizable middle class and where that spending does not just cover essentials such as food and shelter. You know, this allows for a rapid growth in domestic demand and the subsequent expansion of the domestic economy through domestic consumption. So if you look at the, company, at the countries where we invest, the population in these countries is usually very, very large. I think people will probably be most familiar with the size of China and India, but perhaps less so in some of the other countries. So for example, you know, Indonesia has a population of about 270 million people, the Philippines, 100 million people. So these are very large countries. And if you then consider that you have an existing and, middle class, existing and growing middle class with the capacity for discretionary spending, then you can see that the growth rates and market opportunities in these countries are just fantastic. Perhaps you know, the growing middle class can now afford their first ever air condition purchase, or perhaps it's the first time that they take out a fixed broadband subscription. So you know, all of a sudden, you know, in a country like India, you can now be looking at millions of people buying their first ever air conditioning, uh, if we use that example. So let's talk a little bit more about India. I know that India Mart has been uh, recently one of your more successful investments. Tell us that story. Yeah. So by way of background, India Mart is a B2B e-commerce platform that basically connects small business enterprises with customers all over India. India Mart's online platform offers a route-to-market solution that allows the local businesses to list and sell their products at a national level. If we consider India Mart from Elephant's point of view, it neatly ticks all the boxes what we look for in a company and what I talked about earlier. You know, For example, it has a domestically driven business model. And at the time of investing, it was also less covered by sell-side research and it had a much smaller fleet free float market cap. Also, the founders or the promoters, as they're often called in India, owns more than 50% of the company, which is something that we like. Now, there's a number of things that we look for when we consider an investment. And one of those things, it's scarcity. And what we mean by that is sort of what is the scarcity value of the company? And this can be something like a unique technology or access to market, or for example, a license or a regulatory approval. What we would also look to see is how broad this moat around the company and its business model is. Then we want to make sure that the company's product or services is at the start of a roadmap and something that can be developed further and continue to grow as opposed to a one-time success that fizzles out. And lastly, we want to make sure that the company can grow at a sustainable growth rates, and that they have the potential to grow earnings by 20% per year for the next three to five years. Um, without going into too much details, but India Mart basically met all of these criteria. 
It's developed a great B2B technology platform and is now the market leader in this segment. And as its customer base grows and the market share increases, the moat around this business model only strengthens. You know, basically, if you, you want to list your products on a portal that has many buyers, and the more listings there are, the more buyers, buyers it attracts, and so the circle goes and you get this network effect. Um, just to give you sort of a sense of the market opportunity that India Mart faces, right? So there are in India, with a population of 1.3 billion people, more than 60 million small to medium-sized enterprises, you know, or SMEs for short. So out of these 60 million SMEs, more than 40 are either involved in manufacturing or trade, which makes them potential customers for India Mart. It is then generally assumed that between 20 to 25% of these SMEs are currently using the internet for business purposes. So this equates to a current total addressable market of around 10 million SMEs. India Mart, as the market leader, right now has about 150,000 paying SMEs on this platform, which you know is less than 2% of the TAM. Um, so you can see that the opportunity for top line and bottom line to exceed 20% per year going forward is definitely there. You know, if one then assumes that the business internet penetration will follow that of other emerging markets, such as China, and that the absolute number of SMEs will grow going forward, then the TAM will easily double to 20 million within three years. And this idea to focus on the entrepreneurial business opportunity in India is very interesting, we think, right? So one of the global investment banks recently published an interesting analysis in India in which they came to the conclusion that in order to maintain today's employment levels, India needs, needs to add 800,000 new jobs per month from now until 2030. And that's just a staggering amount. And it's basically 10 million jobs a year, you know, which is the equivalent of New York City or London each year uh, until 2030. And it goes without saying that the Indian public sector and the large corporates that we know about now, they cannot absorb all of these people and that many of them will have to pursue self-employment or entrepreneurship. And we think that India Mart is well positioned to benefit from this trend. Really interesting story. And you know, in that particular case of India Mart, as you've described to us, it, it is based on um, a, a technology platform. Is that a trend generally in your portfolio? Do you look for companies that have differentiating tech capabilities or is tech really not as important as, for example, it has been recently in advanced economies? So, so tech is obviously important also in the countries where we invest, you know, and we, and we have a number of tech holdings in the portfolio. We just mentioned India Mart, which is a tech company and was our biggest contributor last year. But we're, no, you know, we're not an EM tech fund and our fund is truly sector agnostic. You know, we just try to create a portfolio of the 25 best ideas across the countries and sectors that we operate in. And of course, like the degree of technology that a company embodies can vary. You know, on the one hand, you have a pure play tech company, such as a India Mart B2B software company or a mobile ad tech company. But then you also can have a retail company that is moving more of its sales online and trying to leverage technology that way. Um, I think that technology, it's such a big part of our lives today and usually something that we as investors value in a company 
However, I also think that it's something we need to be realistic about. I mean, for example, one of the ways that WeWork tried to differentiate itself to the investor community was by selling itself as a tech company as opposed to a real estate company and thereby justify higher valuations. And uh, at the end of the day, we know what happened. Uh, and that is probably more of a real estate company than a, than a tech company. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so let's turn the focus a little bit. In in recent years, more and more investment capital has been flowing away from active managers like yourself and towards passive managing management strategies such as index funds, thematic ETFs, that sort of thing. How has this movement of funds into passive strategies impacted your work as an active investor? I'm not sure that it's had such a big impact on our way of doing business. You know, none of our holdings are part of the MSCI EM index or the equivalent ETF. And this is one of the reasons why our fund actually has a very low correlation to the EM index. As a matter of fact, the S&P's correlation to the index is about 0.8 versus 0.4 for us. So despite being an EM fund, our correlation is less than half that of the large US index. Since our holdings are not part of the indices, they will not be impacted as index constituents would be if for whatever reason an EM or a country ETF becomes more popular or falls out of fashion. And I would say that foreign fund flows, and they they can take the shape of passive strategies such as ETFs, they largely concentrate on and impact these index constituents since they have a higher market cap and better liquidity as opposed to the smaller, less liquid companies that we generally hold. Um, from a business point of view, you know, we don't see any competition from ETFs trying to do the same things as us. Uh, and the reason for that is probably two things. So first, you know, our strategy is it's a pretty expensive strategy to run since it involves extensive due diligence, uh, including the traveling that we do. And secondly, our strategy has a maximum fund capacity of about 500 million AUM. And you get that by factoring in the restrictions we place on ourselves, such as you know, free float market cap, the number of stocks we hold and how big our positions can be. Um, and then for an independent founder-owned family firm like ourselves, you know, we're quite happy with that AUM capacity. However, if you're a large fund manager like Fidelity or Vanguard, looking to deploy billions of dollars, this is probably not a strategy for you. So I would say that those are the reasons that why we don't see many other funds or ETFs for that matter, doing the same thing as us. Interesting. So you, you referred to your, your uh, strategy as being fairly expensive, you know, it's a lot of on the ground um, due diligence and so forth. And, and you've already told us a lot about your investment process as it relates to corporate governance, but tell us a little bit more generally about how your investment process is deployed. How do you identify the opportunities to begin with? And then how do you act, what process do you go through to make the decision to add them to your portfolio? Yeah, so, um, so I think one thing that's unique with our strategy is that our investment ideas generally come from our network of local contacts, you know, the frequent visits to our target countries, reading blogs, other meeting with other portfolio companies and, and various news sources. You know, and as mentioned, the broker research is rare for the companies that we look at. So that's usually not a source of, uh, of initiation. So, you know, an example of how an investment opportunity can come about uh, could be the following, which actually happened pretty recently, that um, we knew from 
you know, research that the cost of data in India, in terms of one gigabyte of data, is extremely low. It's actually amongst the lowest in the world. It's about a tenth of what we pay here in the UK, which in turn is much lower than what you would pay in the US. And part of the reason is because we have this large company in India called Reliance, which has been pushing its smartphone called Geo very cheaply, effectively with the ambition that they would capture the market and that you would use your phone to do all sorts of things, including mobile commerce. So what you have then is a country of 600 million people that have some sort of smartphone, but far fewer people have their own TV or a computer. So for example, you know, in lower tier cities, you will have your own phone, but you will share your TV. So from an advertiser's point of view, this is very interesting since it makes targeting TV commercials very difficult. However, you can analyze what people do on their phones, you know, and hence you can run better ad campaigns with higher returns on investments in this medium. So this mobile ad tech space was something that we were interested in. And then after doing some research, we came across a company that focused exactly on this. And what proved particularly useful in this instance was that one of India Mart's board members was also a board member of this company, so we could build on our due diligence that way. Um, so that's a little bit about how investment ideas come about. Now, the investment process usually follows a pretty standard format. We'll have an investment idea, which we build a rather expensive model around, uh, and we do that from our desk in London. If we then like what we see, we will reach out to the company and usually speak over the phone or Zoom with the CEO, CFO, the founder, what have you. Um, this allows us to develop a better understanding of the company, as well as confirm the financial and model assumptions that we have done and so forth. The next step after that would in normal times be an on-site due diligence meeting with the team. You know, these interactions allow us to hear the founder's vision firsthand, as well as, the, as well as the ability for us to see the assets in person. And to us, these in-person meetings are really important. You know, based on these meetings, we would then fine tune our model and the idea would be discussed in the investment committee where it's decided whether to invest or not, how big the position size should be and what the entry price should be. Obviously, you know, we haven't been able to meet with new management teams during the pandemic. However, I don't think this necessarily has been as big of an issue as we thought it would be. You know, Christina and I have worked together for more than 10 years. And if you then consider that we've been going to these countries three to four times per year, you will appreciate that we built up a rather extensive library of, um, of companies and face-to-face -face meetings on which we can draw. And we've actually been able to use one of these experiences to make an investment during the pandemic. Gosh, it's it's fascinating work that you do, and and I'm curious to know what what drew you into this. How did you become an investor in emerging market public equities, and when did you know in your career that this is what you wanted to do? So, you know, my first job when I left McIntyre was as a M&A analyst at J.P. Morgan in New York. You know, and I then worked in M&A at various banks, both in Europe and in the U.S. Um, and although I learned, you know, you learn a great deal about finance, valuations and so forth in these roles, but I did find them a little bit too advisory in nature. You know, you, you could spend a week, a month working on a merger and acquisition or disposal, but ultimately at the end of the day, the decision whether to execute on that idea or not was never sure. It was never yours to take, right? So I knew that I wanted to do 
work where I had some more skin in the game and where I was involved in the decision-making process. And I guess I didn't exactly know whether that would be private equity or public equity, but I knew that ideally I would like to combine it with my background and interest in emerging markets. Um, amongst others, I have worked for more than two years at the World Bank, where my geographical focus was the, the West and East Africa. And I thoroughly enjoyed working in this this geography. You know, it was so different to everything else that I had been doing before. And then as luck would have it, about 10 years ago, I met an experienced portfolio manager by the name of Christina McGuire. And she was looking to send up or to set up uh, an EM fund. And well, you know, I worked with Chris ever since. So what is it that you and Christina and others who do what you do, what do you think you're good at? In other words, what what skills do you perhaps have that make you successful at this game? I I think one of the traits that we probably have is that we're all we're very curious people, and I think that is something that you you need to be um, in in this profession, and maybe more so in the space that we operate in, right? Where you're not fed. The information we really have to go out and find it ourselves. So I think that the job lends itself very well to people that have a curious nature. You know, I think that's one of the traits. Do you think you are optimistic? In other words, do you tend to see the opportunity, or would you describe yourself as more skeptical? And that makes you keep digging and keep asking questions, and you're never quite sure whether you know something is as true as it might appear on paper, or or are you somehow both? Um. You, you, probably somewhat both, right? I think you have to be optimistic because otherwise you, you would never decide to go ahead and invest, right? But then I think Christina's German, I'm Swedish. I think there's a little bit of always caution and questioning behind everything you do. Um, but I think, you know, in general, you're optimistic, uh, but then you try to poke hole at, uh, at every investment proposal that you put forward. Interesting. So I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this podcast, both current McIntyre students as well as young professionals, are probably listening to you and thinking, wow, that's what I would like to do one day in my career. For those people who are thinking that, what advice would you have for them? I mean, first of all, I would I would wholeheartedly decide or I would wholeheartedly wish for them to pursue the career because I do think it's a fantastic job to have. Um, now, in terms of recommendations for what they can do, you know, I appreciate that given this moment of time, it might be very difficult, but I would encourage students to basically travel and go on treks, go on exchanges, you know, what have you, to these emerging countries. You know, the more exposure you get to these countries, the, the better you are for it. And it's really the case that you get better with experience, you know, so, so the more, the better. So that's one recommendation I would do. I would also say that, you know, the amount of information available to students today and the opportunity to learn, it's, it's just incredible and not something that was available when I was a student. You know, take, take the, this medium, for example, you know, you can, you can learn a lot by listening to podcasts when going running or working out. You know, perhaps you don't want to hear my voice when pounding payment in, in Charlottesville, but there are a lot of other pr- more seasoned professionals that, you know, could be very useful to listen to. And I guess what I'm just really trying to get across is to encourage students to take advantage of the various learning opportunities that they have available to themselves at a place like UVA. That's wonderful. 
Hey, Martin, thanks for a great conversation today. You've, you've given our listeners a rare glimpse into how top tier investors look at opportunities in emerging markets. And you've also helped us to understand the importance of taking an active investment approach. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew. Special thanks to Al Hoover, McIntyre's Director of Media Development for audio editing. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners, and we look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!